0: Hello everybody, this is Dr. Deanna Minnick. Welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast, where we explore how you can get some more color, creativity, and healing in your everyday life. We get to look at the spectrum of eating, living, feeling, and creating that you're all about. So let's dive into the inspiration and information rainbow that awaits us. Hi everybody, this is Dr. Deanna. Welcome to another episode of Color Can Heal Your Life. You know, this podcast hits pretty close to home for me. I know that some of you know that I had disordered eating and much of that was propelled by having a lot of restriction when I was very young, growing up and I couldn't eat a lot of different foods and I had a lot of chocolate cravings and it was uh, really not under control and I felt really out of control with my life as a result. And it took decades, it really took a lot of time for me to learn how to have a better relationship with food and my body throughout the years. So in this interview that I'm going to do that you're going to hear, it's with Glenn Livingston, Glenn Livingston is a psychologist, he also has a coaching program that he offers, and he's an author, he's he's the author of Never Binge Again, which is a wonderful book, you know, a very well-received, it's had over 1,500 reviews, 500,000 readers, I mean, it's out there, and he's getting his method out through his coaching program. So what you're going to hear in this podcast is about Glenn's personal journey. He and I share many similar tracks in our lives with uh, whether it's the food companies that we were connected with and doing some work for or mothers and our chocolate cravings. So you're you're going to hear a lot of different things in this interview. And if food and eating is something that you have great interest in for yourself, and, and I'm sure that you do, I mean, we all have to eat and all of us are in some way navigating our relationship with food, I think that this podcast will speak to you. So here we go. Okay, hello everybody and welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast. Today's guest is Glenn Livingston who is a Uh, Goodness, uh, does a lot of different things, but I think we're going to have an exciting conversation here about a topic that many of you are interested in. He's a psychologist, he offers coaching programs, and he's also an author. So welcome, Glenn, to the show.
1: Well, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here, and I've been looking forward to this all week.
0: Me too. Uh, You know, ever since we we first spoke, I was thinking, goodness, you know, you have so much to offer people, and I want to help you get the word out. And so uh, I just happen to know that many people, as part of my community, are very interested in this topic of binge eating, which we're going to dive into. But before we do, I want to ask you the question that I ask everybody that comes on the show, which is, what is your favorite color?
1: My favorite color, Deanna, would be a deep purple. My my mother used to wear it a lot, and I find it just oddly soothing and comforting.
0: It is. It's kind of a regal color. And... um, I associate blue purple with the brain. It's consciousness. It's uh, the intellect as much as it is intuition. And hmm. based on what I know about you, that seems to <laughs> suit you perfectly. So um, beautiful. And, and you know, this year, 2018, is the year of ultraviolet, according to Pantone. I don't know if you know that, but it's uh, kind of resonant with the color that you mentioned.
1: I didn't know that. I didn't <laughs> understand. I didn't understand about the intellect and intuition, which is. That's odd because my dissertation was on creativity, which turns out to be a combination of intellect and intuition. So I think the um, you know if you have only intuition, sometimes people descend into madness. But if you can temper it with more um, more left brain thinking, you have a controlled regression which leads to problem solving and creativity. So um, that's really interesting because that's been a value that I've embraced my whole life. Who knew?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, that you just hit on something that I'm very interested in, which is creativity. But before um, we... I, I'd like to get into that, too. There there's so many things to talk about with you. I first want to understand your personal journey of how you got to be an expert on binge eating. Is this something that you've had as part of your personal experience? Is this something you grew up with? Was there somebody around you that was close to you who had this and they were struggling with it?
1: Very much a personal experience. I... I actually stayed away from treating eating disorders. So, I'm not a psychologist that spent a lifetime working on eating disorders. Uh, I had one myself. When I was a child, well, an adolescent, really, I'm six foot four, I'm reasonably muscular, and I discovered that if I worked out for two or three hours a day, I could eat almost anything I wanted to. You know, six or 7,000 calories a day was no big deal. Multiple pizzas, boxes of muffins, cakes, chocolates, lattes, you you name it. If it wasn't nailed down, I could eat it. And I stayed thin and strong. And I didn't think this was a problem. I really, you know, I thought it was more like a superpower. I was really, I was really happy about it. But when I got, when I got older and I got married and I was in graduate school and I, I had patience and responsibilities and I was commuting, I didn't have the time to work out. I mean, if I could work out 45 minutes twice a week I was in good shape and unfortunately I continued to have the mental obsession with food and I found like I couldn't stop eating six or seven thousand calories a day and as you might expect my my metabolism slowed down a little when I stopped growing and I started getting fatter and fatter and fatter and my triglycerides went through the roof they're supposed to be somewhere in the hundred to hundred and fifty range I believe but Mine were somewhere in the 800 to 1,100 range most of the time. And based on my genetic history, the doctors were telling me I was probably going to have a heart attack before I was 35, and I really better do something about this. But I I found that I couldn't, and more importantly, it was interfering with my presence in life. And being a psychologist has always been exceptionally important to me. I was raised in a family of psychologists and psychotherapists, there are 17 counselors in my family. And I always felt like that was my first priority in life, was to be present, be able to investigate what was bothering people, show them different avenues, help them think different thoughts and and take risks where they needed to. And I was working with some very risky kinds of clients. I, I was working with a lot of suicidal adolescents. I was working with a uh, a lot of people right after they had an affair. I, I was a couples and family therapist, and I just wasn't present. I, I'd be sitting there and these people would be telling me that they wanted to kill themselves, and I'd be thinking, gee, when can I get to the deli and dislodge the contents of the first tray into my, into my stomach? Um, and that was very, very disturbing to me. So I tried everything you can imagine. Like, being a psychologist, I thought, Everything, I had a hammer, I thought everything looked like a nail. So I tried all these psychological approaches. I, I went to other psychologists who specialized in eating disorders. I went to psychiatrists, I went to Overeaters Anonymous. I even, because I, you know, I never had kids and I didn't commute, I had, a, I had a lot of time in my hands, so I had, had a dual career. So I was also doing some consulting for big companies and i knew how to do these large marketing research studies so I set up a study for myself where i asked people what foods they couldn't stop eating and d- different aspects of what they were satisfied or dissatisfied with in their life and some personality variables and i found three things i found that people who struggle with chocolate like i did because i tended to start my benches with chocolate and by the way most people tend to start their binges with their favorite food or behavior even if they eat everything else afterwards but i I tended to start them with chocolate. And I found out that people who struggle with chocolate tended to be lonely or brokenhearted. And I thought, "That's, that's interesting because I was not in a great marriage and I was a little depressed and I thought, okay, well maybe there's something to that. I also found out that people who struggle with salty, crunchy things tend to be stressed at work. And people who struggle with soft, chewy things like breads and bagels and pasta tended to be stressed at home. And I, I went and I asked my mom, because I said, okay, this is, this is probably a clue as to what's happening. So I said, mom, is there any reason in my upbringing, you're a therapist, why would I run to chocolate if I feel lonely or brokenhearted? And she got this awful look on her face. She, she was just so distressed. And I said, mom, what is it? And she said, well, honey, I'm so sorry, but when you were a toddler, when you were you know, one or two years old, I was very depressed. My father, your grandfather, had just gotten out of prison and I had had no idea that he was involved in these kind of things. He was actually guilty. And I would loved and adored him my whole life and I was so depressed. And your father, my husband, was a captain and they were threatening with taking him to Vietnam. And I was really scared. I thought I was going to be left all alone. And so sometimes I would just be sitting and staring. And when you would come to ask me for food or you were crying and you wanted to be held, I just didn't have it in me. So I got a big bottle of Bosco chocolate syrup. Oh my goodness. Right?
0: Uh Uh-huh. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm just oh wow, I'm in this going through this with you.
1: So she kept it in a refrigerator on the floor and she said, Glenn, go get your Bosco. And I go running over to the floor, I crawl over, mm. I take the Bosco out of the chocolate, out of the, out of the refrigerator. I'd suck on it and go into, into a chocolate sugar coma. And I thought, Eureka, this is it. This has gotta be the match that struck the fire. And if this were the movies, Deanna, we would have had a big cry. We would have forgiven each other. And we would have, I would never have had trouble with chocolate again. Mm. That's that's what would work in the movies. But you know it, got, it actually got worse and I couldn't figure out why. And then I realized it was almost like there was another voice inside me which was saying, you know what, Glenn, you're right. Your mama didn't love you enough and she left a big chocolate-sized mm-hmm. hole in your heart. Mm-hmm. And until you can find the love of your life and get rid of this loneliness, you're just gonna keep on binging on chocolate. Yippee, let's go get some. So the emotion became a vehicle to excuse more eating. And I thought that was that was my first clue that maybe the emotional cure was not really the way to go. Maybe you really couldn't love yourself then. And it was very hard for me to break out of that paradigm as a psychologist because I I really believed in the power of the unconscious and the power of childhood patterns. But what I learned, because I was also doing a lot of corporate consulting, and I saw what was going on in these food companies. You know, there were things like taking the vitamins out of a food bar because they were too expensive and they interfered with the taste and putting the money into packaging instead to make it look irresistible to, like the vibrant colors and all the things that would signal like the diversity of color that would signal a diversity of nutrients that should be available to the brain they would they would fake that while they were actually taking nutrients out and then I saw all the all the concentrated forms of like hyper palatable starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins that are all wrapped up, and then billions of dollars of advertising going into making us believe that we can't live without it. Do I mean, you know there are almost 7,000 messages about food that are beamed at us every year over the internet and airwaves, and how many of them are about whole fruits and vegetables? Like almost none, right? So, so. I started to realize that there was an incredible offense going on against us, that these foods had a life of their own. Like there, there were no chocolate bars in this van we, we were not evolutionarily prepared to resist these types of things. There, there were no bags and boxes and containers and cookies and chips and pretzels and pizza. It, it just didn't exist. And I coupled that with... And in the addiction treatment world they're telling you that you can't quit even if you want to the best you can do is one day at a time and strive for progress and not perfection and i just put the whole thing together and i said this is i'm not going to get there by loving myself thin it's almost like i'm caught in the middle of a war i'm going to have to capture and cage that part of me that that wants to bend i'm going to have to erect some kind of a defense this is this is not about nurturing my inner wounded child this is about this is about a real battle that I'm in the middle of. And around that time, I was also reading some alternative treatment literature, alternative addiction treatment literature from a guy named Jack Trimpey at Rational Recovery. And he was, I'm really paraphrasing him here, and I want to invite people to go to the original text if they really want to know, But but he was basically saying, look, the seed of addiction is the lizard brain. And if you look up the neurology of the lizard brain, like what? What did the lizard brain think when we were evolving at that point? The lizard brain looks at something in the environment and it says, do I eat it, do I mate with it, or do I kill it? It's eat, mate, or kill. And so if addiction is seated in the lizard brain, if I'm online at Starbucks and there's a big hairy chocolate bar at the counter, and I hear this voice that says, a little won't hurt, it's okay, you can start tomorrow, or you know, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean and a cocoa bean comes from a plant and therefore chocolate's a vegetable. If my paradigm is that means that I need to love myself more, that my inner wounded child is hurting, then I'm going to open up more to that lizard brain where there is no love and there's no creativity or long-term aspirations or strategic goals or, you know, health and fitness concerns or, uh, contribution to society or spirituality or creativity or concern for tribe and family. It's, it's just eat, mate, or kill. I said, so that's, there's something wrong here. And I started to do something similar to what Jack Trampy was suggesting with drugs and alcohol. He works mostly with black and white addictions that you can give up entirely, but you can't do that with food. So I started to draw some very clear lines in the sand. I said... I need some way to know when the lizard brain is activated. The only way I'm gonna know that is if I have very, very clear rules for myself about what is healthy for me to eat and what's not healthy for me to eat. And so I would do simple things like say, I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. Like as opposed to saying, I'm gonna avoid chocolate 80% of the time. I would just say, I'm never gonna have chocolate on a weekday again. And this is an embarrassing part. I said, the thing inside me that wants chocolate on a weekday, that's going to be my inner pig. I'm not talking about a real pig. I think real pigs are very sweet animals and they need our help in the world. I'm talking about a mental construct, all the destructive thinking that convinces you to change your plan. I said, that's going to be my inner pig. The chocolate itself is going to be pig slop. Anything that the pig says about why I should have pig slop is going to be pig squeal. And when I heard the pig squealing for pig slop, I'm going to say, well, I don't eat out of a pig's trough. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. So and so
0: Glenn, was that almost like an image that you were using, like a metaphor so that you could relate to it in that reptilian brain? Am I getting that right? Yeah, I, like, Why why did you create that metaphor?
1: Well, I mean, it's a little embarrassing because I'm a sophisticated psychologist that's million million of consulting and all that. But it, I needed something that was going to wake me up at the moment of impulse and remind me of the kind of person that I wanted to be, of the decisions that I'd made. I I wanted to cultivate a type of disdain or disgust for that destructive impulse. I figured that I I needed to treat it almost like you treat impulses driven by your ovaries or your testicles. It's not like there's something wrong with the urge but you don't allow it to dominate you. Like if I see an attractive woman in the street, I don't go run and kiss her, right? Or, or your bladder. You know, it, it generates a very, very strong urge for a particular type of behavior which is pleasurable, but I only allow that out in very certain specific areas of my life or specific, or specific times. And you know, I'm, I'm toilet trained, just like everybody else in our society, and that's what makes it possible for me to be the kind of person that I want to in the world. So really what I was doing was articulating the lines to define the kind of person that I wanted to be around chocolate in this case. I was really saying I'm not the kind of person who eats chocolate during the week. And it turns out that when you can eliminate all of those food decisions, you don't need willpower anymore. You're building character and character trumps willpower. If you, because all all the research on willpower suggests that it's a fatigable muscle, it's not not a black and white thing that some people have and other people don't. It's more like gas in the tank, and every decision that you make, it it wears down that gas over time. That's why there are only so many good decisions you can make over the course of the day, and that's why so many people have trouble in the evening with their eating, because they've worn out the gas. But if you decide, I'm just not the kind of person who has chocolate during the week then you don't have to make chocolate decisions all day long. You're not wearing out the gas. I could illustrate the difference if you imagine you walk into a diner and the waitress says she'll be right back. She just has to get your menu. And you notice that there's a $10 bill on the table because she hasn't seen her tip. And there are no video cameras and there's no window and there's nobody up front and nobody would see you take that $10 bill. Virtually everybody I talk to says there's no way they would take that $10 bill. And I'll say, why? You'll be better off and nobody would know. And they'll say, well, I'm just not that kind of person. And say, what do you mean? They'll say, well, I'm not a thief. This woman worked hard for her money and I'm not a thief. And I said, so as a matter of character, you've eliminated the need to make a decision about whether or not to take that $10 bill. It doesn't require willpower, it's just not the kind of person you are. That's what I'm talking about. And, okay. Okay. yeah.
0: Is that yeah. unlike cognitive behavioral therapy where you create a construct of, that alter ego that is engaged in a certain behavior, or is this something very different?
1: Well, it's it's very similar to that in practice, but there's a conceptual difference in as much as when you're talking about an alter ego, you're talking about a fragmented part of yourself. And the the implied goal when you're dealing with a fragmented part of yourself is to reintegrated into your personality. I prefer that people think of this part of themselves as um, as sociopathic and something they want to distance themselves from. It's it's really better to think of it like a bodily organ they need to control rather than something they want to learn to accept and love and integrate back into their personality. So it's not it's not really the alter egoing cognitive therapy, it's not really the alter egoing gestalt therapy. It's, it's, it's a bodily organ that's out of control, and you need to take control of it in the way that an alpha wolf takes control of a challenger for leadership in the pack. You, know, you, you kind of growl at it and you say, get, like, get back in line or I'll kill you. That's, that's basically the attitude.
0: Okay, all right, so that clarifies. So where did you go from, did you actually use this strategy to help overcome this, this draw towards chocolate?
1: It's the only thing that worked. Now, now it wasn't a miracle immediately, I should say. I, what I noticed was that it gave me some choices. It, Up until that point, I was feeling rather hopeless. Um, I was taken with the mythology in our culture that says that we're powerless over these impulses. I am, you know, they've been making better and better chocolate over the years, so it's getting harder and harder to, to resist. But I, I started to notice that there were a few moments of clarity where I realized that I did have a choice. And I didn't always make the right choice, but eventually I said, well, if I have a choice and these are the consequences when I make the wrong choice, I don't like these consequences. And I started to use my free will to make the right choices. And then I started to lose a little weight and that was motivating. And then I made the right choices more. And before I knew it, I was the kind of person who didn't eat chocolate during the week. For, for me personally, I eventually decided not to eat chocolate at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I haven't had chocolate in years, and I really like it that way because, um, well, because there's a there's a physiological phenomenon behind cravings. It's called like down regulation and up regulation. I, I don't know if you want to talk about that, but basically, if there's a super stimulus, something that doesn't exist in nature, where there's a concentration of pleasure that you're not prepared for. Your pleasure centers, your taste buds, everything down-regulates. It doesn't respond at the same level. As a matter of fact, the ultimate end of all of this is where people feel that they need that supersized stimuli like they need chocolate just to feel normal. And I was experiencing that. And otherwise, I was, feel- I was feeling very depressed and like I couldn't find pleasure in anything. Um, in psychology, they call that anhedonia. and so I'm really happier. For me, none is a lot easier than some, some because I've allowed my, my whole physiology to readjust and I'm not bothered by the cravings anymore. When I was trying to do it, sometimes I was bothered by the cravings a lot, so I, I prefer not to have it, but not everybody does that.
0: Glenn, I you know I, I just have to share with you I, I you don't even know this about me but um, much of your story is in parallel with what I've experienced and I'd like to just tell you briefly what happened on my front uh, similar story with my mother my mother when she was pregnant with me so this wasn't even after I was born but during the pregnancy uh, she got married she basically conceived me out of wedlock, so there was a lot of stress there. Uh, both of my parents came from Catholic families, and my mother, when she was pregnant, and I, I asked her about this because I noticed that I was very drawn to chocolate, and I would binge, especially during my teen years when my mom became this uh, food... Uh, I, I, She was kind of like the really into food. I would call her um, kind of a health nut kind of person, and she also got really into her faith. She was very zealous, and so what I um, I went back to my mom and I said mom I don't know what it is but I just have this thing with chocolate and then she would tell me stories of how when she was pregnant with me she would just pour into her glass more, it wasn't Bosco, it was some kind of Nestle product, but it was chocolate syrup in which she would just fill up mostly the chocolate syrup and just a little milk, and she would be drinking this. I mean, it's just amazing that you and I have had this uh, very similar experience, and then it kind of epigenetically programmed me so that, and I don't want to blame anything on my mom, I'm actually quite glad that I had this, this confrontation, this situation with food, because later, I mean, even today, um, the... The negotiation and the agreement that I have with chocolate is that I have 100% cocoa. Like I I let myself have that and I feel like it's very satisfying. And without the sugar, the dairy, all the other things that come along for the ride, just 100% raw cacao powder oh, wow. is, what, is what I, and, and actually it tastes great. You know, you take a tablespoon, you put a little bit of hot water. I add no sweetener and my taste buds have acclimated. To this, And I feel like, you know what, this is actually a healthy treat. This is something, even though it's not sweet, it's, it's actually extremely bitter. And Trader Joe's makes a 100% cocoa bar, uh, which is from the UK. It has nothing other than pure cocoa. It, it's so hard. It's like baker's chocolate, you remember, in the day. And so, like, you melt it down. So, like, that's, I mean, I, so a little bit different than your situation where you've said, you know, I don't need it anymore. It's been years. Um, the, the thing for me is that I've continued to bring it in because I know that it's there's something in that relationship for me and I don't see it completely uh, as, as a downside. I feel like it can be a great teacher and it's not detrimental for my body if it's just the cocoa and not the chocolate.
1: It sounds so like, like a really healthy choice actually. I think that sounds like a really healthy choice. And when I help people to construct their food plan, I don't, I don't tell them what to eat. And I, the key question I ask them is, what role do you want this food to play in your life? And sometimes they don't know. Sometimes they don't know, should I allow myself to have as much you know, 100% cocoa as I want to and nothing else, or should I let it go entirely? And so we'll project out into the future. I'll say, well, okay, let's, let's not decide for now. Let's think about, in a year's time, what happens if you allow the 100% cocoa and nothing else? And let me see what you imagine would happen to your health, your weight, your skin, your energy level, your mental clarity, what would happen to your relationships, what would happen to your finances, what would happen to your, your house or apartment, what would happen to your social activities. You'd be surprised how much changing one dietary behavior can impact people's vision of the future. And then we'll do the same thing for what if you gave it up entirely. And when people compare and contrast those two futures, sometimes there's no difference. And then I say, well, if there's no difference, you might as well have more freedom. So you might as well keep the the cacao in your diet. And, you know, if you find out that that's not the case, if you find out that's leading you to other things, then We'll, we'll come back and change it. But you know, let's let's opt for more freedom, as long as you don't think that there's really a big difference. A lot of times, people, when they go through that exercise, will think that there is a big difference, and then they'll say they want the more restricted version. So it's really it's really up to you. It's really up to you how you want to do it. And I I tell people that it's it's like being a city traffic planner. You want to put stoplights and stop signs and yield signs at the appropriately dangerous intersections. You don't want to put more control than necessary because you're going to be restricting the free flow of traffic through the city.
0: Mm. So you're
1: trying to maximize freedom and maximize safety at the same time.
0: Yeah. You know, I want to ask you, you you just raised the key word there, which is restriction. And I've been monitoring the literature on emotional eating for some time. And like you, I also teach on it. There was an article, a review article. It was a meta-analysis that came out just May 31st, 2018 and I just pass it on to my community. And essentially what they showed from looking at many different studies, I think it was something like 56 different studies, they had uh, close to 4,000 people that they were looking at. What I remember from looking at this and what I recall from previous literature is that any time that there's restriction or restraint, and in the literature they call this restrained eaters, that there's an increased eating with any kind of um, emotions that come up that aren't comfortable, that there's, a, there's surely a difference between restricted, restrained eaters and, I, I don't know what else we would call it, free living or <laughs> eaters that get to have a different relationship with food. And I'm just wondering if this whole concept of restriction, you know, because... The way that you're describing it, at least you're giving people a choice, right? You have the locus of control. It's like, if you vision out this future, what would happen? And where do you want to go? Let's plan the map. And you're giving that over to them. But do they ever come back and say, you know what? I can't do it. I tried for a month and I feel so restricted and it's creating a lot of stress in my body. And I find myself becoming very preoccupied. What's your take on this whole literature of restriction and uh, restrained eating?
1: It's a very important question. It's a very, very important question. And I'm very much against, you can use this type of thinking to overrestrict your diet and your food freedom. You You can do it and there is a bounce back effect. And if you think about it, it makes sense that there would be an evolutionary mechanism in the brain that would say if calories and nutrition are scarce for a period of time, then as soon as they're available, we'd better hoard them. And this is why I believe that people who find that they get over full, that becomes a trigger for them to binge more. You would think that being full would be a trigger to stop, but a lot of people experience fullness as a trigger to binge more. It only makes sense in the context of that hypothesis because the body is saying, oh my god, you made calories and nutrition scarce for such a long period of time that now we really have to take them in because they're available. So I I do think that there's that danger, and I think that if people over-restrict themselves so they don't feel like they've got enough satisfaction and satiation and freedom and enjoyment in their diet, that they're likely to rebel and go the other way at some time. So I think that's always true. And I tell people, look, there are some rules you can't make. You can't say, I'll never pee again because at some point your body's going to tell you that was a silly rule, we're gonna force you to pee. So I'm against restriction. What I, I, and, and we are almost always working with people to loosen up their rules in such a way that they have more freedom and satisfaction. However, the implication that the bulk of the field takes from those studies is that rules are bad, guidelines are good, we should learn to eat intuitively. I think that's a mistake for most people. For some people, it does really work, and I don't want to take that away from them. If it happens to be working for you, then I think you should keep doing it. I think we can eat intuitively within certain boundaries. I mean, we don't eat dirt and rocks, right? There, there are always some rules about what we put in our mouth and what we don't put in our mouth. And when you look at what's happening in our society today, I mean, do you know that it's actually legal? There, and there are food products out there that use flavored cardboard. It's actually legal to sell people flavored cardboard. <laughs> and I, I think at some point you have to stand up and say, that's not something I want to put in my body. I'm not the kind of person who eats flavored cardboard. So... I think that if we were in the tropics and all that was available are the foods that nature had to offer us, and there's some debate about what that might be, but suppose it's just fruit and vegetables and nuts and seeds and maybe some animal protein. If that's all that were available, I think we could eat 100% intuitively and we wouldn't need something like Never Binge Again to clarify and protect us. But in the context of what's going on in the food industry and the advertising industry and the addiction treatment industry, I think that we're in trouble and we need to think through, we need to think through and eliminate some of the decisions so that we're not walking into this lion's den of all these predators that are after our lizard brain just being willy-nilly thinking, well, you will eat whatever we feel like it because what you're gonna feel like eating is what they have for you. It's there are people out there looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box and container because this stuff is so addictive.
0: Glenn, I'm wondering if you could define intuitive eating a bit. You know, there are some studies on it. It seems to be beneficial in some people. So maybe just make the distinction. So first, if you can define for us what is intuitive eating as it's defined out there in the world of psychology. And then number two, I think what you're saying is that we need a combined approach. Like I don't know if intuitive eating really negates any kind of guidelines or but maybe you can make that distinction for us.
1: Well I I don't think that in its pure form that it does. There were the two authors that wrote a book called Intuitive Eating and that's that's what most people are referencing when they're talking about intuitive eating. They've got they actually have ten guidelines for eating intuitively. And I'm not really an expert on that, so it's a little bit of a difficult question for me, and perhaps I should study a little bit more so that I can answer a question like that. Um, The way that I think about it is, you know, eating when you're hungry, stopping when you're full, asking yourself what is it that you really want Are you really hungry, or is this an emotional need? Is there something else that would satisfy this need? If you really do want it, where are you going to get the best form of it? And being mindfully present for every bite so that you can allow the food to nourish you, and you're never saying to yourself something like, well, I'm never going to have this again, so I better get as much as I can. You tell yourself, if you want more, you can come back tomorrow. And there's a lot of validity to that. That works for a lot of things with a lot of people.
0: By the way, that's what I know about intuitive eating, too. So that syncs up with, you know, what what I haven't read the book that you're referring to either, but just from the scientific literature, that's how I would surmise what they're referring to. So thank you. That's, that's a great thumbnail on oh, intuitive hmm Good,
1: good, good. And like I say, I think that, I think that guidelines are helpful, like eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full. That's, it's helpful North, Shore to, North Star to shoot for. The problem with guidelines is that they require decisions, they're not really objective. Ten people couldn't follow you around all day and agree about whether you ate intuitively or not. It's, it's very, very subjective and because it's subjective, your lizard brain can fool you. It can say, Oh, yeah, baby, we're hungry, believe me. But we're not full yet. You, you could use uh, another plate of seconds or something. It's So so. there's a capacity to be fooled. What I'm really arguing for is not restriction, but focus and clarity and the elimination of decisions. I'm, I'm arguing for deciding, for, for thinking through how you want to eat and articulating how you want to eat. Now, if you happen to make a mistake, this is a little bit more of a complicated concept to describe. A lot of people are frightened of making rules because they say they're going to feel too guilty if they make a mistake. So if I say I will never have chocolate again, they'll say, well, if you do have chocolate, you're going to feel so guilty you're going to wind up really binging. And my counter argument to that is in several pieces. First of all, I think we can change our food plan whenever we want to, and still present it to our inner food demons or our inner pigs as if it were set in stone. It's very similar to how you would tell a two-year-old. If I had a two-year-old little girl, I would tell her, listen, little Sarah, you can never, ever, ever, ever cross the street without holding daddy's hand, ever, 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 never, ever, ever. The reason I say that is I don't want her distracted by the dangerous thought of darting out into the street by herself. It's too dangerous. She doesn't have the maturity. It's too dangerous. Our pigs are the same way. We don't want them distracted by even the possibility of thinking that presenting these cravings is going to get them a result. However, when that two-year-old little girl is seven or eight years old, probably younger, I'm going to start to teach her to look both ways across the street. I don't tell her at two years old that I'm going to do that. I just tell her she can't cross the street by herself. It's that kind of thing. So. It would be foolhardy to make a rule and stay with it forever, no matter what, without integrating new information about nutrition, without seeing how your body responds to this, without seeing what situations you have trouble with. There might be some situations you need to make an exception for. Um, But the psychology of winners is the psychology of 100% commitment. You, You can commit with perfection even though you plan to forgive yourself with dignity if you make a mistake. So I believe that there are two mindsets required to achieve a goal. One when you're setting out towards a goal and the other when you're analyzing a mistake. When you're setting out towards the goal, an archer who is aiming at the bullseye visualizes that arrow going into the bullseye before they even let go of the arrow. And that allows them to purge their mind of doubt and distraction and use all of their energy towards goal achievement. If they miss the bullseye, they don't take the rest of the arrows and shoot them into the audience and say, oh my God, I'm a compulsive bullseye misser. You know, I might as well just just let these fly. They get up and they make adjustments and they do it again. The purpose of guilt and shame, its not there's nothing wrong with feeling a little bit of guilt and shame if you break a solemn word to yourself. But just like touching a hot stove you only need to feel that pain for a second so that you know where the stove is and you don't touch it again you just need to pay attention it's just there to get you to pay attention and it actually turns out that perseverating on the guilt and shame getting overly involved with it it's a pig's game it's it's actually binge motivated What the pig wants is for you to feel too weak to resist the neck binge. So all of that self-castigation, all of that negative talk after you make a mistake, the whole purpose of it is to sustain the binge. And you'll find, I learned this from Carol Munter, that it's almost impossible to keep binging if you forgive yourself and stop yelling at yourself after you make a mistake. It's almost impossible. So I say commit with perfection, forgive yourself with dignity. And in that way, you're able to evolve a a set of definitions that make it clear to you what your decision should be in various food situations and you're not constantly wearing down your willpower. That's, that's what I find works for us.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and let's talk about your book, Never Binge Again, and the people that you've helped. I, you know, you've got this coaching program, so you, it sounds like you're using and, and employing a lot of these techniques that you're describing within this coaching program for folks.
1: I do. First of all, I, I never set out to do this. I, I was actually, I was running a coach training organization. I had a number of other business endeavors. And <laughs> as I was getting divorced, I'd had a journal that I'd kept for eight years about me versus my inner pig. And I thought I would never tell anybody about it because it was really embarrassing as a, you know, the person I am in the world. <laughs> I, thought, I thought I would never get up and talk about it. But I was part of a minor public. I was a minor partner in a publishing company, and they asked me to publish it. And it just took off. It's we've got over 500,000 readers and 1,500 reviews, and it just absolutely took off. And it turns out that people resonate with this this approach. It sounds weird in theory, in the abstract. It sounds kind of harsh and weird. If you listen to recordings of the coaching sessions, where you see people. Regaining hope and enthusiasm and power, and then you hear the follow-ups with them to see how well they did It's um, it's actually a very compassionate way of, of going about things. So yeah, I tell people to start with one rule what what's What's the single worst trigger food or eating behavior? That you struggle with for me. It was chocolate for some people it might be that they have to stop going back for seconds I know a guy who? Didn't want to give up any food whatsoever. Didn't want to stop going to fast food places. He was like 250 pounds over, overweight. And his coach talked him into just, just not going back for seconds. And 150 pounds later, he's um, still going to fast food places and still doing all these other things. He just doesn't go back for seconds. And it made all the different difference in the world for him.
0: Wow. That's wonderful. Do you have a way that you distinguish personality types and then <laughs> put them on personalized paths in order to, to work with, I'm assuming that your coaches are also trained to look for certain behaviors or characteristics. And then what do you do in those cases? But I'm just wondering about the personalized approach of the program.
1: Well, it's very focused on, it's very focused on getting clear about how you want to eat and whatever diet you want to eat, as long as it's nutritionally complete, will help you with. And then it's very focused on identifying the particular squeals that are preventing you from following those those rules. Mm-hmm. Um, there are personality-based reasons why people prefer a particular squeal. Um, you know, some people who are reasonably impulsive will jump from diet to diet to diet we we call that the confuse and conquer squeal or the grass is greener on the other side squeal where they're they're always trying something else and really that's the pig's way of keeping you in chaos so that no rules ever really exist and you're living in anarchy and we tell those people that the grass isn't greener on the other side the grass is greener where it's watered mm-hmm. it would be it would be better to Find one and stick with one, even if it weren't perfect, so you can have the experience of mastering your impulses and reclaiming your power. And then, if you want to study different diets and consult with nutritionists to figure out what you want to evolve from there, then by all means, go and do that. But we want you to have the experience. So we we look for things like that. But I, I find, Deanna, mostly that the traditional concepts of you know personality and emotion. They are valuable in psychology. Like like just like you and your experience with your mom, it was helpful for me to have that conversation with my mom. I, I forgave myself. I was less harsh with myself for all the problems I had. I forgave my mom for you know feeding me incorrectly. It's I, I you know, we did have a hug, we did have a cry. It it was a soulful thing to do, it was a good conversation to have. And we do have those conversations with people sometimes. But we find that it's much better to be a fireman than a detective. It's much better to, or to build a better fireplace than to work really hard on putting out the fire because it can take years to figure out the emotional traumas and get people to stop responding emotionally. We try to teach them that no matter what your personality is, no matter how strong your emotions are, you actually don't have to listen to the voice that's triggered by those emotions, and that's that's a very cognitive approach. That's a very, um, you know, very very focused on the particular thoughts that justify breaking your best laid plans, and so it actually isn't extremely personality based. We 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 have more we have more success in matching people with a coach in the appropriate time zone, as opposed to a coach that specializes in a particular personality. It's, it's an interesting thing. And we, yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. for this reason, I, I am, I'm outside the, I'm probably outside of the best practices for my profession. And so I offer this as coaching and education, not, um, psych, not psychotherapy. So I'm not, I'm not treating in this, situation I'm, I'm educating and walking people through a very specific methodology um, but we're, we're successful we're starting to get starting to get survey data back from you know people six months a year or two years down the line and they're still down 20 or 30 pounds and they're um, they're not obsessed about food and they're, they're close to their goal weight and they feel more comfortable with their body and we're starting to get really good success statistics so something we're doing is working not with everyone and I, I admit it's a bit of a weird approach but the people that take to it who are usually people that find that nothing else works then it's it's really helpful
0: that's great glenn thank you so much this has been a a fabulous um you know you really unpacked a lot of the concepts and and really anchored that into your personal experience which helps us to see your journey how do people get your book and find out more about your program because i'm sure that um you know, there's, there's a lot of intrigue now after listening to this this formula and actually helping people and maybe even helping oneself.
1: I hope so. So I'd like to give you all a copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format for free. And you can get that by going to NeverBingeAgain.com and clicking on the big red button, signing up for the reader bonuses. You'll get a copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. When you do that, there are two other things you'll get that are really helpful. One is we'll send you recordings of coaching sessions that we did, so you can hear how this works in practice. And like I said, it's a harsh technique in theory, but in practice, it's actually very compassionate. And we will also send you a set of food plan starter templates. So we put a lot of thought into what the typical rules people might use for low carb versus high carb versus Point counting versus vegan versus macrobiotic versus ketogenic. I put a lot of thought into what types of rules might work there. And we call them starter templates because we don't want to take responsibility for what you eat. We just want to give you some ideas about how you could frame the rules and then you can modify them to best suit your needs. That's all at neverbenchagain.com, and click the big red button and that's all free. Once you're there, you will get information about the coaching program as time goes on. Um, there's a little blurb at the end of every coaching session recording that talks about how to get coaching if you want to. And you can also use the contact button on Everbench again if you need to get in touch with me directly. Perfect.
0: Wonderful. Well thank you so much for sharing of your your insight, your wisdom, your intuition. I feel like it's all kind of wrapped up into um, this this journey that you've been on and now what you're offering to everybody. So thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Deanna.